Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to see you. As Pete says, we're carrying on. If, you've not, if you're relatively new here, we're in the middle of a series on seven particular uh, Christian virtues, virtues for the Christian life. Within that, we're in now like a, a, a mini-series, a little extended time, focusing on the subject of generosity. And as we said last week, that is in no way because we, th- we have a concern that we're not amongst an incredibly generous people, quite the opposite. Uh, but we, we believe there is more joy that awaits us, there is more delight in God that awaits us, uh, there is more gospel fruitfulness that awaits us as we keep growing in generosity uh, together as a church. So uh, this, this mini-series, in my mind, in our mind, is really primarily about joy, about growing in delight in being a generous people. Uh, I've called this morning's uh, message, because I thought generosity part two on its own is a bit dull. Uh, so we're going with money, possessions, and eternity. That's going to be the particular focus today. And to help us with that, I want to focus in uh, on Matthew chapter 6. So if you could open up to Matthew 6, and I'm going to read from verses 19 to 24. This is Jesus in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what he says to his listeners. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now they say that there are three things never to talk about in polite conversation, in polite company, and they are God, politics, and money. Well, here on a Sunday morning, we obviously talk a lot about God, and we love to do it. We promise never to talk about politics. And we are this morning, though, going to talk unashamedly some more about money, about money and possessions and eternity. Because Jesus, while saying hardly anything ever about politics, spoke an awful lot of the time about God and money. And maybe you've heard the statistic before, but if you take all of his teaching throughout the four Gospels... 15% of what Jesus taught about was on the topic of money and possessions. More than all that he had to say about heaven and hell put together. So the question this morning then is not, does Jesus think it's okay for Christians to talk about money? He absolutely does. The question is, why did he choose to talk so often about possessions and money? Why did the one who had come to save sinners from death and sin and hell and bring us into a whole new life in his kingdom, why did he put such a special emphasis on teaching about money? It doesn't seem at first glance like the most spiritual topic, does it? Well, the reason is that there is in fact a rock-solid, 
hardwired, unbreakable link between our everyday spiritual lives and how we think about money. Far from being this distant and unrelated topic, our approach to possessions and money is central to our spiritual lives. And when you stop and think about it, all sorts of perhaps New Testament examples begin to come to mind. Think about examples of people meeting Jesus and having their old attitude to money radically changed and transformed as a result. Now just to be clear, I'll mention some examples in a moment, but just to be clear first of all, it's not that any of these people were saved because of their generosity. They all understood completely that salvation is a gift of God alone, that it has nothing to do with what they might subsequently give, that there is nothing they could ever do to purchase or earn or repay the gift of forgiveness and new life that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, secures for us forever. God's generosity comes first, as we heard so helpfully last week, and it's unending and it's incomparable and it's nowhere more gloriously displayed than in the sacrifice of his son for us. So the Beatles once sang, money can't buy me love and all the money in the world cannot buy one iota of our salvation that was purchased for us at the cross through the precious blood of Jesus. But once people receive that radically life-changing and undeserved gift of salvation in Christ, then it is that we see people's attitude to money and possessions radically changing. Uh, So think of Zacchaeus and his response to Jesus coming into his home and bringing salvation to to his life. Immediately, Zacchaeus pledges to give half of all he has away to the poor. Think of the early church in the book of Acts full of brand new Christians eagerly selling their possessions to meet the needs of those around them. Or think of the former Ephesian occultists. They're into the occult. But at their conversion, they burnt their magic books worth 50,000 pieces of silver. I think millions of pounds, certainly hundreds of thousands of pounds in modern money today. And we also see a strong connection between some people's love of money and their refusal to repent and follow Jesus. Like in the parable of the rich fool who decides to keep building bigger and bigger barns to store up more and more wealth for himself, for his future security, but who doesn't ever stop to think about life after death or how he might be rich and generous towards God. Or we have, of course, the rich young man who wanted Jesus to tell him, how, how, can I, how can I receive eternal life? How can I gain it? But in the end, we're told he went home sad because he wasn't willing to give up worshipping his wealth to follow Jesus. And so you have these and many other biblical examples of everyday people like you and me, some wise, some foolish, some rich, some poor, all looking for purpose and meaning in life, all looking to make decisions about what to do with their money and possessions. And yet there couldn't be a starker contrast between these two groups. One group experiences eternal loss, the other group experiences eternal gain, and all, at least in part, because of their attitude toward money, and their attachment to money in the presence of Jesus. 
It really, really matters then how we think about money and possessions and eternity. It really matters what treasure we choose to live for. And so it's to this topic of money, possessions and eternity that Jesus turns his attention in Matthew 6. And so that's where we're going to spend our time primarily there this morning, unpacking and applying his teaching to our lives together. In these six verses, I think at least I see it, at least three main points Jesus makes about money that I want to highlight this morning. Three instructions that he is addressing to us today. The first of these instructions, the first one is this, right there at the start of verse 19, quite simply, don't lay up treasures on earth. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Here's what he says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Uh, So let's ask, first of all, what does it mean to store up treasures on earth? Well, I think it means quite simply to live for this world and its treasures. It means filling our lives with possessions and orienting a good proportion of our lives around acquiring those possessions and keeping those possessions, focusing the lion's share of our attention on working for them, acquiring them, stockpiling them, guarding them, maintaining them, and upgrading them like like a kind of greedy dragon on an ever-growing mound of shiny things. It means living as if one of our main purposes in life is to acquire more money and better worldly possessions. That, Jesus wants his listeners to understand, is not what life in this world is meant to be about. To lay up for ourselves treasures on earth is to make a great mistake with our lives. And yet it's that very same great mistake that the world around us wants to convince us is the main proof of a life well lived. The culture we live in, it wants to convince us in a thousand different ways every day that the size and the quality of your house and your car and your phone and your clothes and your holidays and your dining experiences are the best measure of how well you're living your life and how well you're achieving just think what the average person might say as they, as they pull up to a friend's new house. They pull up to the house, they see there in the driveway a brand new car. They go inside, there's expensive items of furniture and technology all throughout the house. And they sit down to a lavish meal and they hear stories about exotic hobbies and holidays. Here's what many a visitor might say. Isn't he doing well for himself? Hasn't she done well in life? I'm I'm so glad to see their life is going so well. But none of those things that they're seeing and even praising are in any way, in Jesus' kingdom, a measure of a life well lived or of a life lived wisely and fruitfully. Now, at best, those things say very little about a person's character or about their fruitfulness. At worst, they might be a sign of great folly. Because as Jesus here assures us, if you lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, only disappointment and regret awaits us. This world is a very unwise place to spend our lives stockpiling treasures. Because here, moth and rust destroy. And thieves break in and steal. And I think those images could be applied sort of two ways in two stages. First of all, Jesus is reminding us that even during this life... 
while we're trying to enjoy our earthly treasures, they have a tendency to decay or go wrong or pack up or go missing. Just think about how many clothes you've bought over the years and maybe some, some really good clothes. You paid good money for them, which in the end you've had to toss out in the rubbish because they've worn away. And I don't think I've got actual moths in my wardrobe, but I'm constantly finding holes in my clothes. Or who's ever owned a car or a house that even after replacement or renovation starts to soon show signs of wear and decay? If your house is anything like our house, cracks and dents and damp appear in all sorts of places. In this present world, moth and rust destroy. And how many people in this world have lost anything from their lawnmower to their life-saving to their livelihoods through thieves and cheats and swindlers who break in and steal? See, Jesus is lovingly showing us earthly treasures are just the worst possible investment, fading and perishing right here in front of us, even as we try to protect them and keep a tight hold of them. Psalm 23 verse, sorry, Proverbs 23 verse 5 says, Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. But even if we could somehow lock up and lock down and uh, our, our growing stockpile of possessions, and we, even if we could protect them with the utmost care all throughout this life, the greatest destroyer and thief awaits us at the end of our lives. If nothing else robs us sooner, death will eventually rob us for certain. Rob us of every single earthly treasure in the end. That's why if you, if you ever see a hearse driving down a road, you never see it being followed by a removal lorry. Taking all of the deceased person's possessions with them to the cemetery. You just don't see it. It's why the tombs of the ancient Egyptian pharaohs are still found full of all the same treasures that they were buried with many thousands of years ago, though they themselves hoped that they could take their earthly riches into the next life with them. It's why when one of the wealthiest men of all time, John D. Rockefeller, died, and someone asked his accountant, uh, how much money did John leave? The reply was obvious, yet quite profound. He left all of it. Psalm 49, verses 16 and 17, advises us, counsels us, do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Why not store up treasures on earth? Well, quite simply, because we can't take a single item of it with us when we die. It is not wise to invest our whole lives in such short-lived and temporary trinkets. That is Jesus' loving and compassionate warning to us this morning. He loves us. And so he wants to say to us, don't waste your life, your one and only life in this present world, on such poor and flighty, flying away investments. Instead, and this is our second Heading for this morning, the second instruction he gives, instead, lay up treasures in heaven. Verse 20. I'll read it in just a moment, but um, what strikes me first of all about what Jesus says in verse 20 is simply this, that Jesus is not anti-treasure. 
It's not that Jesus is against us being treasure seekers. In fact, he exhorts us to be storing up treasures for ourselves all throughout our lives here on earth. He is pro-treasure. He wants us to be passionate about stockpiling more and more and more treasure, to be uh, Indiana Jones-like in our dogged determination to unearth more treasure during this life on earth. But what he wants to ensure, again because he loves us, is that we store up real and lasting treasure in the right place, in the best place, in a place where it will last forever. Now, I don't know how many of you are knowledgeable about stocks and shares and making investments. I really don't have a clue, but I admire people that know what they're doing. I obviously get too distracted by re-watching things like Indiana Jones rather than worrying too much about my finances. But here is the single best piece of investment advice that you and I will ever receive in our lifetimes. This is the ultimate insider trading tip for a lifetime of investment from the one who knows the end from the beginning. And it doesn't take a degree in economics to understand it either. Here it is, verse 20. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. The place for us to stockpile treasures right now is heaven. Heaven is the place to invest in today, even while we're still here on earth. But what does that look like? Because I think we all find it easy, don't we, to picture earthly treasures, money and cars, clothes, jewellery, gadgets, mansions, lavish holidays. But what do heavenly treasures look like? That's harder for us to get our heads around. Well, the first and most important thing to say is that Jesus isn't just being poetic, or figurative. He, he's not just here talking about sort of ethereal, ghostly treasures. No, no. He is talking about laying up real treasures, real tangible treasures, which one day, if they're not already, one day they will be touchable, experiential, enjoyment-filled treasures. Now, let me just run through what a few of them. The greatest of all treasures, surely, is that of knowing Christ himself. According to Paul in Philippians 3, there is no other treasure in this life or the next that even begins to compare to knowing Jesus personally for ourselves. So that's got to be the best treasure of all. A second incomparably great heavenly treasure is surely that of enjoying new life in his kingdom under the rule of this generous king. And that's an experience, of course, that begins for us even here and now. The moment we first trust in Jesus. Like the man, you remember Jesus told the story of, here's what the kingdom of God is like. It's like the man who found treasure buried in a field and immediately went and sold all that he had so that he could buy that field and obtain that treasure. So it's being a part of the kingdom. Life in the kingdom is part of this treasure. A third example of heavenly treasure is our new and everlasting future home. An absolutely thrilling and never dull, boring or painful life in a new physical creation, a new earth where all God's people will dwell and God himself will dwell with us there forever, where every new day is better than the last and better than we can imagine with no fear of it ever ending or growing dull or tired. A fourth great heavenly treasure that we see 
mentioned in the New Testament are the other people that we will help to bring there with us. Paul talks about people like they're crowns. People we will help to bring there with us by generously sharing the gospel with those who don't know him here and now and spending ourselves for the sake of those who do know him, helping them to persevere and keep going in following Christ all the way to glory. And there are many more treasures besides that are hinted at and pointed to throughout the pages of the Bible. But whatever all these many treasures will be, they are, most importantly of all, treasures that will last forever. That's, that's Jesus' big point here. That's his emphasis on the sheer imperishability of these heavenly treasures. Neither moth nor rust can lay a finger on them. No thief or criminal, not even that great thief death itself, can touch them or go near them or steal them. Every Christian has an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And that's the kind of treasure that Jesus wants us to focus our entire lives on now, laying up and stockpiling for eternity. So next important question, how do we do it? How do we lay up ever-increasing treasures in heaven? Uh, Jesus' words in a parallel passage in Luke's gospel, I think, are really helpful here. Luke 12, verse 33, he says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So while we can certainly, and we should, uh, be generous in sharing other things like our time and our energy and our skills as well, yet according to Jesus, being generous with our money and our possessions is a vital ingredient for living the Christian life and laying up heavenly treasure. Yes, we can certainly hold on to some of our money and possessions as well. We can enjoy them as good gifts from God, we, uh, even as we're using them for the good of others while we keep hold of them. But it's impossible to pretend that Jesus doesn't also call us to be literally and regularly giving away a generous proportion of what he has given to us to meet the physical and spiritual needs of other people. Living as a Christian must radically affect our quality of lifestyle and our bank balances, making us sacrificially generous people, leading us to open our wallets or our purses. What's the equivalent? Or our Apple wallets, if you're not carrying a physical wallet anymore. But opening them frequently, diverting our spending away from many luxuries in order to pass on to others a generous portion of what God has entrusted to our care and our stewardship. Is this a call then to complete earthly poverty? No. No, no, it's it's, it's something far more positive and rewarding than that. This is a call to sacrificial, gospel-driven generosity all throughout our Christian lives. It's a call to keep putting our hope Not in wealth and possessions and always acquiring more, but instead pursuing the far superior joy. It's that joy I was talking about at the beginning. That far superior joy of rich generosity whilst placing all our hope in God. It's exactly what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17. 
He says, command those who are rich. And I know we have differing levels of income, and some of us particularly right now um, uh, understandably feel like we're struggling, but we're, we're rich, all of us still, proportionally across the world and in history. Um, God has blessed us richly. Here's what Paul then writes to the rich like us. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I really like that. I want to take hold of the life that is truly life. That sounds good. Don't put your hope in wealth, God says to us this morning. Why spend so much of your money and energy right now working for an amazing home and an amazing retirement in this life, which is only going to last a handful of years if we're lucky? God is saying to us, instead, be wise. Be eternally minded. Spend this life storing up Treasures that will be yours to enjoy forever in the life to come. Invest in that which truly lasts. Take hold now of the life that is truly life. As uh, Jim Elliott, Pete mentioned him last week, I'm going to mention him again because uh, he's an amazing inspiration. He lost his life as a young missionary to Ecuador. I think he was just 28 years old. Just a few years before that, he famously said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Eager and joyful generosity is what life looks like when lived with the gospel confidence and the eternal perspective of Jim Elliot. And there is no better, surer, wiser, or more eternally satisfying way for us to live than this. I mentioned earlier on the example of the Egyptian pharaohs whose tombs were full of the most uh, dazzling earthly treasures because they wrongly imagined they could take those things with them into the next life. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever visited the pyramids. I won't ask you to admit your glamorous holiday this morning. But let me recommend a far cheaper and I think more powerful pilgrimage to a burial place just over in Arnos Vale along the A4 in Bristol. I'm talking about the grave of George Muller. I remember uh, we visited the cemetery there some years back in search of his grave with our kids. And I guess I, I kind of went, I did expect it to stand out a bit from the rest. For a man who did so much in his lifetime to save uh, many thousands of orphan children in Bristol. Children who'd been left out on the streets and in the workhouses. But there was nothing about his grave that stood out in a visible way. I think we've got a picture of it here. Put it up there. Sorry, it's a bit faded. I know. I'll read it to you in a moment. But there it is. It looks pretty ordinary. There's no pyramid over it like the pharaohs would have. No, not even a special fence around it. No space for treasures to be buried inside it. So comparing graves, many onlookers would assume that Tutankhamun led a far more significant and successful life than George Muller did and accumulated a far greater treasure for himself until that is... At least as a Christian, you read the inscription on Muller's grave. Here's what it says. In loving memory of George Muller, founder of the Ashleydown Orphanage, 
Born September 27th, 1805. Fell asleep March 10th, 1898. He trusted in God with whom nothing shall be impossible. And in his beloved son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who said, I go unto my father. And whatever you shall ask in my name, that will I do that the father may be glorified in the son. And in his inspired word, which declares that all things are possible to him that believeth. And God, this is carrying on, it says, and God fulfilled these declarations in the experience of his servant by enabling him to provide and care for about 10,000 orphans. This memorial was erected by the spontaneous and loving gifts of many of these orphans. So George Muller versus the pharaohs, giant pyramids versus a humble gravestone, who do we think accumulated the most treasure? Who made the best and wisest investment in their earthly life? To which of these two men would you prefer your life to most closely resemble? Now, if like me, you're realizing afresh this morning that in many ways you're on the wrong path in terms of living for heavenly treasures, that's where I find myself. Well, Jesus' words and Muller's grave are a fresh wake-up call in the best possible way. They're a call to change. They're a call to, to readjust. Where perhaps we've been drifting off course recently in our approach to money, possessions, and eternity. They're, they're a fresh invitation to embrace more fully a life of radical, faith-filled generosity. Knowing with the fullest confidence that ever-increasing delight and joy awaits us when we look to Jesus and our eternal future and we live with heaven in view. And yet, it's not easy, is it? Even with a great encouragement like that, it is not easy. It is a daily, hourly battle for us to live generously. There are, there are, just, there are so many worldly treasures that I still feel like I would love to have, to acquire. I feel like I need them. Even a, even a purchase or two, I'm sad to say, I've made recently that weren't perhaps the best way to be wise and generous with my money. I just find it so easy to get sucked into this living for the accumulation of money and possessions and those shiny things. So how can we as Christians stand out? How can we resist and live differently? How can we steer our hearts down the far better path of sacrificial generosity? Well, the human heart, as you've probably found if you've been around any time, is, is like a big ship in the sea. It's not an easy thing to steer. But in the final part of our passage this morning, Jesus, the sort of master helmsman, gives his expert counsel on how we can steer our hearts into the deeper waters of generosity. And the essence of his instructions in verses 21 to 24, this is back in Matthew 6, the essence of what he says is this, and this is my third and final heading this morning, set your heart on God not money. Set your heart on God, not money. And in these verses, he, within this, he sort of lays out three specific principles for understanding how to direct our hearts. First of all, we have to realize, number one, our hearts go where our money goes. Our hearts go where our money goes. So he says, for where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. The thing is, I think we like to think that our hearts will lead us through life. Maybe you've heard the, the counsel, the advice, just follow your heart. It'll take you to the right place. Just follow your heart. But the truth is, our hearts aren't great leaders at all. Our hearts get led by other things. They are easily led astray. First and foremost, by the things we choose to treasure. Or to put it another way, um, your heart and your treasure, they're inseparable. And your heart always follows your treasure. Your heart always follows your treasure. So that means the more we devote our money to certain things, the more our hearts will become preoccupied with those things. Kind of a vicious circle, a spiraling thing. We become more devoted to loving and treasuring and preserving those things we put our money to at all costs. Practicing generosity then, especially with our money and possessions, is key in loosening this world's hold on us and training our hearts outward and upward toward our heavenly future. The alternative, which is holding on to money and possessions with a vice-like grip, it will lead us to an ever-increasing melancholy, sadness and dread about this present life ending. It's said that John Wesley once toured the vast estate of a proud plantation owner. They rode their horses for hours. They saw only a fraction of this man's property. And at the end of the day, they sat down to dinner. The plantation owner eagerly asked, well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think? And Wesley replied, I think you're going to have a hard time leaving all this. Randy Alcorn writes, many Christians dread the thought of leaving this world. Why? Because so many have stored up their treasures on earth, not in heaven. Each day brings us closer to death. If your treasures are on earth, each day brings you closer to losing them. He who lays up treasures on earth spends his life backing away from his treasures. To him, death is loss. He who lays up treasures in heaven looks forward to eternity. He's moving daily toward his treasures. To him, death is gain. So our hearts inevitably go where our money goes. For where our treasure is, there our heart will go also. Secondly, Jesus teaches us our hearts go where our eyes go. Verse 22, he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, for many years here, I think I pictured Jesus' illustration of the, the eye being the lamp of the body. I think I got it completely the wrong way around. Uh, I was imagining some kind of robot with laser beam eyes that was kind of lighting the path in front of it. Um, probably uh, the fruit of things I was watching on TV. Uh, but what he's actually talking about here, though, is the way that our eyes pour light inward. They're the lamps of our body, a lamp that shines into our bodies so that What we look at with our eyes ultimately comes to fill our minds and our hearts. Whether what we're looking at is rotten or healthy, whether it's light or darkness. If we keep looking at this life through the lens of how much we can accumulate for ourselves here and now, we'll increasingly grow in love with earthly treasures. And at the same time, our love for God will dwindle and dim and go faint. Eternity with him will grow dimmer and dimmer. And this effect is only surely amplified by the 
the visually consumeristic culture that we live in today. Now, we, we, I guess in, there was a day when there was perhaps a farmer daydreaming in his mind about having a better plow. Now we can pull out our phones and we can go online and you know, adverts and online shopping and YouTube reviews of every worldly treasure under the sun. And then we can pull out our credit card and put it on there and not even have to pay for it. We can literally feed our eyes 24-7 in high definition with the darkness of a culture that lives for worldly treasures. All of it fueling unhealthy desires and blinding us to the far superior pleasure of knowing God and of laying up treasures in eternity. In fact, here's a, a, a sort of a thing for us to watch out for. Whenever we feel like our love for God is dwindling, one of the first things perhaps we should consider is where we're pointing the lamp of our body each day. When we're not busy working or serving, what are we spending our time gazing at, thinking about, and desiring? Where do, our, where do your eyes most naturally go to rest? Particularly in this area of money and possessions, is it on what we can give to God and others? Or is it on what we can purchase and accumulate for ourselves? Our hearts inevitably go where our eyes go, for the eye is the lamp of the body. And thirdly and finally, Jesus teaches us, our hearts can only go in one direction. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, he says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And here's the thing. I choose to ignore this time and time again. This idea that I can't be devoted to both God and money, I'd really like to think that I can be. If only I think to myself as, I, as I'm sucked into watching more product reviews on YouTube. If only I could have all kinds of new earthly riches to treasure and enjoy and still treasure and find my joy in God as well. But it simply cannot be according to Jesus. He's so straight with us. Our hearts can only go in one direction. We cannot love both God and money. Now, none of this is to say that there's anything inherently wrong with money. Money can be, as some Christians have found, an excellent tool for serving God and helping others. But money is a tyrannical master if we end up serving it. If we end up addicted to it and in love with what it can acquire for us. Just listen to the stark contrast that Paul paints between loving God on the one hand and loving money on the other. This is 1 Timothy 6 again, verses 8 to 10. On the one hand, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is a, a terrifying, sobering picture of the way our love of money can pave the way to our own destruction. It's a sober warning to us if we think that we can follow Jesus while still embracing an addiction to earthly treasures. Those of us who are parents, we teach our children, you don't 
go near the fire. You don't touch the fire. And yet we are playing with fire ourselves in a far more deadly way if we think we can serve both God and money. So finally, how do we steer our hearts away from the love of money towards godliness with contentment, which we're told is great gain? Well, the answer that we've seen already, the Bible gives it again and again, is to set our hope on God, not riches, and to be generous in giving away money and possessions. Generosity is a divinely prescribed antidote to the love of money. It's the the big antidote God gives us, and it is powerful. And generosity is also the only fitting response to some mightily wonderful news. And that news is that this present world is not our true home. That Jesus has already gone on ahead to prepare for us a better, truer and lasting home with him. And with it an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. The earthly treasures are just mere shadows of the real treasures that are to come. Let's not make the mistake of living for mere shadows, for here today and rotten and gone tomorrow treasures. Instead, Jesus' words to us this morning in Matthew 6, they, they call us to embrace the joy and the hope and the freedom and the anticipation of stockpiling a great wealth of heavenly treasures by living and giving and laying down our lives generously here and now. And all in response to the inexhaustible generosity that God has already lavished on us in Christ. There is great joy that awaits us even here and now in choosing to live more like our generous God and King. Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a generous God and King. Lord, that your grace and your kindness towards us is matchless and without measure and unending. Father, we thank you that you sent Christ not to save the righteous but sinners, not to save the generous but the selfish, not to save your worshippers but idolaters, to save broken and lost men and women just like us. But we also thank you that the grace that first saves us afterwards begins to change us. Lord, we thank you that the generosity we have received from you rubs off on us, freeing us from living for the fleeting treasures of this world to live instead for the eternal treasures of the life to come. Father, we pray, please help each one of us to grow in generosity, in the generous sharing of all that you have entrusted to us for the good of others. Please help us to steer our hearts eagerly down pathways of generosity and to a greater delight in the hope of eternity. May the fruit of all our labors and sacrifices only serve to magnify your name and bring many other sons and daughters to glory. In the name of our generous Savior and King we pray. Amen.